give you the opportunity to know that we are pleased that you are here. We also have a tear-off in our bulletin that you could fill out and place in the offering plate uh, or give to one of the deacons at the conclusion of the service so that we would have a record of your attendance and know better how to serve you. But we are delighted that you're here and welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our youth are away, should return around 3 o'clock. Uh, they are on a uh, retreat in Southside, Virginia. So just uh, make you aware of that so that you could be praying for their safe return. That's why there's no John up here this morning starting the service and me instead. Uh, you see the opportunities of the week are listed. I need to let you know that on Monday, November the 7th, the World Day of Prayer is not at 10 o'clock. It is at 1030. Uh, so make that note. If you come at 10, you'll just be here early. But uh, anyway, it begins at 1030. And then the worship team will meet on Tuesday night. On Wednesday, we will have Bible study and prayer at 11. And at 6.15, we will discuss the 2017 budget. If you'd like a copy of the 2017 budget, and I would encourage you to pick up one, they are in the foyer of the church. It's the proposed budget. Let me be very clear about that. Uh, and we will discuss that budget on Wednesday night, but it will give you an opportunity to look it over before uh, Wednesday night. So I hope that you will uh, be a part of uh, that um, discussion on Wednesday. On, um, you see the other announcements for Wednesday as well. And then on Thursday, the Keenage Club will be going to Quantico to tour the museum there. Uh, and they will be leaving the church at 10 a.m. Uh, also in your bulletin, you will see a handout about uh, Reverend Dwight Hedges, who is coming next weekend to, uh, in view of a call as our youth pastor. He will um, meet with the youth and their families on Saturday and then will be here in both services next Sunday to give his testimony. If any of you would like to ask him any questions, he will remain in the front of the sanctuary following the service so that you could have an opportunity to uh, ask him any questions that you would want because by that time, the youth and the youth parents will have had uh, ample opportunity to um, talk with him on Saturday. And then the following Sunday, on the 20th, we will have our vote. We will have one worship service. That's two weeks from today. One worship service here in the sanctuary for Thanksgiving followed by our Thanksgiving luncheon in the Family Life Center, and you will be hearing more about that uh, next week and in the uh, newsletter and online this week. I believe that's all the announcements that I have, and now Elf Karen is coming. She has a box on, and she had trouble in the first service getting up the steps, so I'm going to be here to help her. <laughs> second annual Operation Christmas Child Packing Party. Wait till you see the loaded tables in the Family Life Center. Y'all have generously brought all year long, and we believe that we'll be able to fully pack 200 shoeboxes today, and that will get us well on our goal to 403 shoeboxes. Lunch is being prepared for 35 people. And I don't see 35 people signed up for the packing party. So even if you haven't signed up, we sure would love for you to stay. Grab a quick lunch, and then together we can get those boxes packed quickly. We have, where's it? We have jobs for everyone at the packing party. You may be a packer. You may walk. You may sit at the table and do the labeling and the rubber banding. Um, or you may be one of the ones who hauls the completed boxes over here to the sanctuary. So there is a job for young and old, every capability. Your packing guides, labels, and envelopes for your $7 shipping can be found in the Family Life Center and in the foyer on the tables. Uh, the final day to bring your boxes is two weeks from today, Sunday, November 20th. I didn't want to wait until the very end to, um, to take care of my boxes, so I got them done this week, 
and I made my $7 per box donation online, which meant that I paid online. I printed out these pretty labels that have, I don't know what that thing's called, but it will run through a, um, what do you call it? A barcode, bar thank you. Um, so a little bit later, I will get emails telling me where my boxes went. And what a joy it is to know that the boys and girls that I've been praying for, where they are receiving my boxes. Um, that always touches my heart. And so remember, that is a way that you may find it easier to do. Reminder, if you're doing multiple boxes, you don't have to put an envelope and a check in each box. Um, they're not going to reject your box if it doesn't have payment in it. Um, just put it in one, and, and it will all work out good. Are you praying for the boys and girls who are receiving your boxes? God knows who's getting this box. What goes into the box is fun, and what comes out is eternal. See you at the packing party.
Shall we pray? Gracious and eternal God, into your presence we come on this day that you've given to us, rejoicing in the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Recognizing, Father, that as we come here, we come to worship you and to listen for a word from you. Draw near to us in this time together. Encourage us, Father, to have open minds and open hearts as we give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we stand and sing together, I ask you to turn to hymn number six, singing Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Would you stand, please? Jesus, in the upper room that night, knew what his mission was and continues to be. He knew that he would suffer and that he would die, but that he would rise again. The disciples needed reassurance. For the mission that they were to about, about to embark on would take courage and faith beyond what they had had even up to that point. And so Jesus did something very beautiful. He gave them something to hold on to, a way to remember them, to remember him and the time that they spent with him. Every time they ate bread and drank the cup, they would remember the sacrifice that was made for them and it would give them faith to move forward and truly it did didn't it it gave them the faith that they needed to move huddled in that room after his death before his resurrection out into the world and lives were transformed and changed. 
Jesus wants us to remember too. And so we have this gift that he has given to us as a way to be reassured that Christ loved us beyond our understanding of love and gave himself for us. And so on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had blessed it and broken it, he gave it to his disciples and said, for as often as you eat this, remember me. After they had eaten, he took the cup. A representation of his very lifeblood and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you drink it, remember me. And Paul gives us this reassurance and this hope. When he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you stand as we sing together hymn number 350? Please do me a favor and be seated. At this time, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the days that you give us here on this earth. We look forward to being be in eternity with you, as you know. But until that time, we bring things such as our offerings and our tithes to you as building blocks here on earth to be able to better make things sufficient here on earth as they are in heaven. Bless these offerings, please, and take them and our noblest trust in the Christ's name. Amen.
Shall we pray? Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We bow before you on this day, thanking you for the many gifts that you have given to us, for the power of your love to redeem us, and for the hope that rests in our lives because of your death, burial, and resurrection. We ask you, Father, to bless us, to bless this church and the work that we are about, to bless our witness, to encourage us to be witnesses before you. We are grateful, Father, for this nation in which we live and for the opportunity we have to exercise our voice at the ballot box. Help us, Father, to seek wisdom from above as we make important decisions about our nation. We're grateful, Father, for those of our church family who have been through recent illness and are well and whole again. And yet, Father, there are many who have great needs. And so we lift them before you and pray that you will work in their lives to bring healing, assurance, and hope. But Father, as we pray, we submit ourselves to your will. For we know, Father, Father that your sovereignty reigns. And so we submit ourselves before you. Help us, Father, to seek you in all things in our lives. For those, Father, who have lost loved ones in recent weeks and months, we lift them before you, knowing that comfort and peace can only come through you. Help us to acknowledge you each day, to come to terms with who we are, in relationship to you, and confess our sins before you and seek forgiveness. We pray for our missionaries, for their work around the world. We pray that as we support them with our prayers and our gifts, that lives can be transformed by the gospel. We're thankful, Father, for the love shown to us through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.
Our scripture reading this morning is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and then Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then verse 21 in the words of our Lord of chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Stewardship is usually thought of only in terms of bringing tithes and offerings to the Lord's house. This is a very limited and inadequate definition of stewardship. It is true that we are stewards of the treasure that comes into our hands. We are responsible to God for the manner in which we earn, spend, save, invest, and give our money. But we are also stewards of time, the precious commodity of which life is made. We may waste or misuse it, or we may use it for the glory of God, the good of others, and our own happiness. Further, we are stewards of the talents and gifts that God has given to us. Some of us are unusually gifted with physical, mental, or artistic talents. We are responsible to God and to our fellow humans for the ways in which we use our talents. And as Christians, we are stewards of our testimony. We sin against God, others, and ourselves when we remain silent instead of being true spokespeople for our Lord. We are called to be witnesses both here and throughout the world. But today we're going to talk about another form of stewardship, citizenship. We are responsible to God, our country, and ourselves at the ballot box. To abstain from casting our vote is to sin against the highest and best of which we are capable. James chapter 4 verse 17 teaches, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, To him, it is sin. Nasty political mudslinging. Campaign attacks and counterattacks. Personal insults. Outrageous newspaper invective. Dire predictions of warfare and national collapse. Innovative new forms of politicking, capitalizing on a growing technology. As much as this seems to describe our present-day presidential contest, it actually describes an election more than 200 years past. We're not new at nasty elections. The presidential election of 1800 was an angry, dirty, crisis-ridden contest that seemed to threaten the nation's very survival. 
a bitter partisan battle between Federalist John Adams and Democratic Republican Thomas Jefferson. It produced a tie between Jefferson and his Republican running mate Aaron Burr, a deadlock in the House where the tie had to be broken, an outburst of intrigue and suspicion as Federalists struggled to determine a course of action, Jefferson's election, and Burr's eventual downfall. The unfolding of the crisis tested a new nation's durability. The deadlock in the House revealed a constitutional defect. It also pushed partisan rivalry to an extreme, inspiring a host of creative and far-reaching electoral ploys. As a sense of crisis built, there was even talk of disunion and civil war. And indeed, two states began to organize their militias to seize the government if Jefferson did not prevail. Given America's survival for more than 200 years, it is easy to forget this central political reality of our early republic. But we as Christians, then and now, have definite responsibilities toward our government. Paul gave an ideal definition of the purpose of government as he encouraged prayer for all who were in positions of authority. I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Government, as the scripture teaches us, as an organization and institution, is from God. It's a way for people to organize. It's a way for people to govern themselves, to get along and to understand that in order for us to survive... We must be governed. Respect for and obedience to government laws are necessary attributes of Christians. Verse 5 of chapter 13. Proper payment of taxes is part of our Christian responsibility toward government. Verse 7 of chapter 13. While we may complain about the improper use of tax revenue, we are obligated as Christians to pay our taxes. We are also obligated to work for legislation that will prohibit our tax dollars from being, from being misused. It's our responsibility. We are to pray earnestly for all who are in positions of authority in government. I have seen lots of things come across social media and my own Facebook page. But one of the things that has been Quiet in all of this, with all of the rancor that has occurred, I have seen very few to no post that suggest that we pray as Christians for what is happening. That is our first responsibility, to pray. We believe in God and we believe in prayer. And so we pray that God's will is done. We pray that as followers of Jesus Christ that we exercise our responsibilities and do what is right. We do not have to admire or even agree with all government officials. If our government is imperfect and our governmental officials are unworthy, we should pray more earnestly for them so they might change and so the people might be protected from unjust governmental leaders. We as Christians have a power that is beyond this world. It's prayer. Good citizenship produces rich rewards for the country. Homes are safer and society is more secure when we understand that we're in this together and that we have a responsibility to serve one another. Political life is on a finer and firmer foundation if Christians will rise to the occasion and do what is right. Cultural life is encouraged and enriched if we allow people to see within us the love of Christ. We are part of this culture whether we are invited in or not. 
And because we are part of this culture, we have a responsibility to be light in the presence of others. The community's religious life flourishes when citizens are responsible toward God, the state, and, the, and themselves. The New Testament is silent at the point of endorsing a particular form of government. There have been and are now many different forms of government in the world, and this is just a few of them, democracy or republic, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. A monarchy, government by one, it began in the interest of efficiency. Oligarchy, government by a few, it is justified by the argument that only a few are fit to govern. Now, understand, these are not advertisements for these forms of uh, government, just making you aware of them. Aristocracy, government by the best. The word best can be defined in many different ways, and we know that through the centuries it has been, and the aristocracy, when they tried to uh, govern on a consistent basis, always found a way to make it about themselves, and many times they were overthrown. A plutocracy. Government by the wealthy. It is justified by the claim that those who have the biggest economic stake in the country have the right to rule it. And then theocracy, the rule of God in the affairs of humanity. Theocracies put God as the center of what they do, but sometimes in the worst possible ways when we take into consideration that Iran is a theocracy. In the United States, we know what our form of government is. It's a democracy that plays itself out in the form of a republic. We elect others to represent our interest. No other form of government gives Christians more freedom. Now, we know what a democracy is. A democracy is a Baptist business meeting. And they're very messy, aren't they, sometimes? When everybody comes together and everybody has the opportunity to have their say and we vote, right? But when we vote at the ballot box on Tuesday, we are giving others the, op the authority on our behalf to act on our behalf in the State House and in Washington. So democracy in its purest form is all of us going to Washington. And that would be a mess, wouldn't it? That's why we are centered around a republic. Dr. Foy Valentine, retired director of the Christian Life Commission of the SBC, in a pamphlet entitled, The Bible Speaks on Christian Stewardship, writes, Government in the United States is organized and operated so that Christians can make a difference. Democracy invites your influence, participation in government. Christianity demands it. Dr. Henley Barnett, who has since passed away, was a professor of ethics at Southern Seminary where I attended many years ago. In his book, Introducing Christian Ethics, says, Christian citizenship is to be faced and decisions are to be made in harmony with Christian imperatives of love and justice. He offers six ways Christians can take part in government. First, study to understand the nature and process of government. That's why we teach civics in school. That's why we teach government to seniors. You know, we need to have at least a general understanding of what we do, what this nation is about. It helps us to be more informed, doesn't it? It allows us to see what the separation of powers means. It allows us to see all of these other things that we hear about and we need to be informed about and understand. Second, participate in the selection of public officials in the formation of public policy. Third, work for the extension of justice, freedom, and equality of all citizens, regardless of race, creed, or color. Fourth, serve in places of political leadership for which one is qualified, regardless of the cost and criticism that may be forthcoming. We are called to be Christians first, and we are never promised an easy journey. We demand something out of our leaders that we can't even accomplish on our own. And that is perfection. The scripture is very clear about that, isn't it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
You know why better people don't run for office? Because nobody's perfect and nobody wants all their business spread across Facebook and across the entire world to see. Because, you know, if I put you in a room and put a naked light bulb over your head and got you in the right mood, I could probably get you to confess to some things that you don't want other people to know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. But you know what I mean. Challenge and criticize any force in society that tends to deny human rights or to run counter to the claims of God. Align yourself with the church and other constructive forces that serve to strengthen the spiritual and moral fiber of individuals and the nation. Christ founded the church as a place to worship and be challenged to follow the teachings of Christ. And if we were about our work, we could make a difference in the world. How do you respond to Jesus' command then to render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's? Again, the suggestions of Dr. Valentine are appropriate. First, let us give primary obedience to God. God alone deserves sovereign control over our mind, emotions, energy, and will. The words of the greatest commandment are of primary importance. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my soul, and my neighbor as myself. The song that the choir sung a while ago is probably one of the oldest in our hymn book, if not the oldest, isn't it, Brenda? Wherever you are. It is, isn't it? It was written by Martin Luther. It was written in German, translated into English for us. Martin Luther understood in his time the control the church had over the affairs of state. And he also understood the great price that he would pay when he challenged that church. And he did challenge it. And when he stood before those who could condemn him to death or imprisonment or excommunicate him from the church, he made it very clear, my conscience is clear with God. That's where our obedience should lie. Let us be obedient to the laws of our country and state. If we consider the laws to be unjust, then let us work through the proper procedures to change those laws. We are not free to be disobedient to the laws merely because they are unpopular or inconvenient. It's not our responsibility. When I was in South Dakota, I think I told you the speed limit in South Dakota is 80 miles an hour. And people are running more than 80 miles an hour, let me tell you. The speed limit in Virginia on rural interstate, we know what it is. I hope you know what it is. It's 70, right, in most places, 70 miles an hour. If I were to come back to Virginia and run 80 miles an hour, there are signs out on the road in Virginia now that they've posted that say, if you're running 80 or above, you can be fined for reckless driving, charged with it. But if I come back to Virginia and I say, well, in South Dakota they're running 80 miles an hour, how come I can't do it in Virginia? You know why I can't do it? Because the law in Virginia says it's 70 miles an hour. And I'm not free to violate that law without consequences. They're there for a reason. Let us earnestly and constantly pray for all public officials that they might have faith in God and that they might respond to their responsibilities to Him. Let us work to establish justice, righteousness, and peace among people. Let us support and preserve and protect freedom. The scripture is very clear on freedom. When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I have another election to tell you about. I was a history and political science, social studies major in college, so this stuff is all interesting to me. And so I did a little research on the election of 1860. The election of 1860 was a critical election in the history of our republic. With the nation so divided 
And with so many people embittered, factions unwilling to give ground, the stage was set for the Civil War. Lincoln, elected president, was immediately thrown into the cauldron of crisis. On March 4, 1861, he rode in a heavily guarded open carriage to the Capitol and gave his inaugural address. He spoke directly to the South. In your hands, he said, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. He added, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot land will yet swell the course of the Union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. But hope of conciliation was a futile one, wasn't it? With the national government finally in anti-slavery hands, the South proceeded to secede. In the wake of that crucial election of 1860, let me be very clear, America's worst crisis began. 550 thousand soldiers were killed. If you put that into perspective now, the population of the United States would feel that loss greatly. We must not assume a negative attitude toward all government things and retreat into solitude with a feeling of helplessness and despair. Helplessness and despair sells newspapers. We must give ourselves in service to God as responsible citizens not only of the kingdom of heaven, but also of the community in which we live. The scripture is clear. The world will know we are Christians by our love. Let us be responsible Christians first and responsible citizens in our endeavor to exercise the freedoms we are given in this country to vote our conscience. And remember the words of James. For the man who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. To him. Shall we pray? Gracious Lord, we are faced with many perplexing problems in a very complex world. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we are free free to exercise our responsibilities. We pray, Father, that as we move forward after Tuesday, that whatever the results, we will pray. We will pray that your will would be done and that we could be instruments of that will in our community. and that we could be in service to you. Help us, Father, to contemplate your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our invitation hymn is number 395, God of grace and God of glory. Will you stand?
as we sing. Thank you for being a part of this service today. I'm always grateful to see you. Uh, we have uh, as a guest today in our sanctuary, George Fletcher. George, it's good to see you. It took me a minute to recognize you. George is the recently retired pastor of First Baptist Church Winchester. And so we're glad that George is with us today. It's always good to see you. And your wife's with you too, I'm assuming. Yeah. So we're glad to have you today. And if anyone else is visiting, we're delighted to see you uh, as well today. This is the first Sunday, so it's Benevolent Sunday. There will be uh, deacons at the door to receive your benevolence offering if you would like to help with the needs and mechanics bill that people have. Uh, it's entirely up to you, but the money that is uh, used helps people with uh, heating and with uh, rent and with other issues that they have uh, when they're caught in a tight spot, and it goes to help people in the Mechanicsville area. Again, thank you for being a part of this time together, and let's close with prayer. Father, we are grateful that as we depart today, that we do so recognizing your sovereignty over us and the power of prayer to change and transform us as well as others. Help us, Father, as we leave today to contemplate your word, to contemplate our responsibilities so that we might be light in the world for Jesus Christ.